All right, what a blessing to be with you. Let's go to Acts chapter 3. It's been so long, you may, re, may have forgotten we're even going through the book of Acts. But here we are. It's been a month since we last met uh, in this series. Let's dive back into this series and see what it means to be a church in action. And my hope and prayer through this series is to encourage us to continue in the areas that we are finding out that we're doing right Uh, provoke us to improve in the areas that we discover we're not doing so well in, and then certainly be under conviction about the things that maybe we've let slide. And I think the book of Acts gives us a great picture of a New Testament church. I don't think I know. And so as we study that, hopefully we can see some of our church in there and then some areas that we can improve. Because I don't want to become guilty of becoming a social club with higher standards than the world. We need to be more than just meeting together, um, but we need to be a people who are about the Father's business of reaching the lost, fulfilling the Great Commission, baptizing believers, discipling converts, uh, for them to do the same. So in our series, we're currently considering Peter's response to the multitude, which is now gathered at Solomon's porch. They're watching this crazy man walking and leaping and praising God. And he would probably be kicked out of most independent Baptist churches, but praise God, here he is. He's excited about what's happened to him. We just sang about it on the scripture song. People are wanting to catch a glimpse of this because they've known this crippled beggar to be laid there at the gate, beautiful, day after day. And now he's been healed, and they're wanting to catch a glimpse of that. Let's do what we've been doing through this section. Read verses 12 through 26. I'll try to do a short recap, and we'll jump into this tonight. And when Peter saw it, he answered unto the people, Ye men of Israel, why marvel ye at this, or why look ye so earnestly on us, as though by our own power or holiness we had made this man to walk? The God of Abraham, and of Isaac, and of Jacob, the God of our fathers, hath glorified his son Jesus, whom ye delivered up, and denied him in the presence of Pilate when he was determined to let him go. But ye denied the Holy One and the just, and desired a murderer to be granted unto you, and killed the Prince of Life, whom God hath raised from the dead, whereof we are witnesses. And his name, through faith in his name, hath made this man strong, whom ye see and know. Yea, the faith which is by him hath given him this perfect soundness in the presence of you all. And now, brethren, I wot that through ignorance ye did it, as did also your rulers, But those things which God before has showed by the mouth of all his prophets, that Christ should suffer, he hath so fulfilled. Repent ye therefore, and be converted, that your sins may be blotted out, when the times of refreshing shall come from the presence of the Lord. And he shall send Jesus Christ, which before was preached unto you, whom the heaven must receive until the times of restitution of all things, which God has spoken by the mouth of all his holy prophets since the world began." For Moses truly said unto the fathers, A prophet shall the Lord your God raise up unto you of your brethren like unto me. Him shall ye hear in all things whatsoever he shall say unto you. And it shall come to pass that every soul which will not hear that prophet shall be destroyed from among the people. Yea, and all the prophets from Samuel and those that follow after as many as have spoken have likewise foretold of these days. Ye are the children of the prophets and of the covenant which God made with our father, saying unto Abraham, And in thy seed shall all the kindreds of the earth be blessed. Unto you first God, having raised up his son Jesus, sent him to bless you, and turning away every one of you 
from his iniquities. So over the last seven messages here, we've covered verses 12 through 19. And since it's been a while, let me just give you the main thoughts. In verse 12, we saw it's all about Christ. Verses 13 and 25, we saw how Christ is the covenant confirmer. In verses 13 through 15, we considered how we are to be living witnesses of the resurrection power of Christ. In verse 16, we saw how that when Christ heals, He heals us perfectly. In verse 17, we considered the dangers of ignorance. And then in verse 18, we saw the remedy for our ignorance, which is to be a people of the book. There is no excuse in today's world in America to be ignorant on the Bible. No excuse. We have the technology. You are all able to read and write to my knowledge. We have no excuse to be ignorant on the Bible. And then last time we saw how knowledge demands a response. And by the way, I mean, backing up one point here, I mean the fundamental doctrines. Right? There's going to be things that we still scratch our head at, perhaps. I know I do. You'll probably see that tonight. But we ought to be people of the book. Now, last time we saw how Knowledge demands a response. And our goal as a church in action is to bring people to a place when we're presenting the gospel that they know you have been given a choice and now you have to make a decision. What I have shared with you, the knowledge that I have given you, demands a response. And we need to present it that clearly. And the proper response to the gospel is to repent and be converted. We saw that as well, which means to change your thinking and your direction. True repentance and conversion Remember, it affects our past, it affects our present, it affects our future. It affects our past because all of our sins have been blotted out. It affects our present because it uh, changes our direction as we turn to God. And it affects our future because times of refreshing will come from the Lord. Now, tonight, uh, disclaimer, it's going to be a lot of Bible study. You're free to sleep. Um, Go ahead, sis. You already got a head start there. Susanna's all camped out on her mom. Uh, I'm only teasing, sister. Um, <laughs> it's okay. You're allowed tonight. We've we got one sleeping here. Look at this. Amen. Um, you can't even see him. He's out on the, on the pew here, but God bless him. Um, so it's going to be a slight deviation of our focus of, of being a church in action, but I ask you to do your best to stay with me, fight the boredom, and do whatever you have to do, but uh, fight the distractions. All right. Verses 20 and 21 tonight. And he shall send Jesus Christ, which before was preached unto you, whom the heaven must receive until the times of restitution of all things, which God has spoken by the mouth of all his holy prophets since the world began. So this is a continuation of Peter mentioning how the times of refreshing will come from the Lord. There's three ways I believe we can look at this. Either God will send Jesus spiritually to the repentant believer at the moment of our conversion, or God will send Jesus physically at the end of this age, at the time of the restitution of all things, or perhaps it's a combination of both, because both are true. There has been some heated debate as to the proper interpretation here. I personally take no issues with any of those positions. That's a political pastor. Whatever you want to believe, that's fine. Just vote for me. Um, Now, I could really get into the weeds here, and I fought it to not go there. Um, I could give you the varying viewpoints on the kingdom. 
Uh, we're going we're gonna to not do that in this text. Suffice to say for now that I believe many make a mistake when they try to view this solely through the lens of dispensationalism and focus entirely on a future physical kingdom. Because one of the major problems of viewing this passage solely dispensational is it makes the return of Christ and the times of refreshing, His presence there, dependent upon Israel repenting and being converted. But this is a teaching which is not found uh, in the text. Jesus never said, uh, it's not found in this text, and Jesus never said it. Remember the disciples asked Jesus in Matthew 24, they said, What shall be the sign of thy coming and of the end of the world? And Jesus answered, Many shall come and say that they are Christ. There shall be wars and rumors of war, but the end is not yet. Nation shall rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom. There shall be famines, pestilences, and earthquakes in diverse places. And then in Matthew 24, in verse 14, Jesus said, And this gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in all all the world for a witness unto all nations, then shall come the end. Therefore, Christ's second coming isn't dependent on Israel's acceptance or rejection of Christ. Many are teaching that today. But Christ will come physically and establish a physical kingdom when God determines the gospel has been preached around the world. That's what Jesus said. And if that ain't close, (laughs) we got to be close to the Lord's return. Whoop! I hope you're ready. Now, I say all of this because of the verses which mention the arrival of the kingdom already. I'm not a kingdom now guy. Okay, look. The danger in trying to... This is why going verse by verse is a blessing and it's tough. We have to address verses that otherwise I'd probably just skip. That's horrible to admit to you. Don't put words in my mouth here tonight. I'm not suggesting there isn't a coming kingdom. The Bible is clear that there will be. But in order to better explain my position here in Acts chapter 3, I want you to consider the verses which clearly speak of the kingdom already being now. You don't have to turn to these. Matthew 12, 28 says, Jesus said, But if I cast out devils by the Spirit of God, which Jesus did, if I cast out devils by the Spirit of God, then the kingdom of God has come unto you. Therefore, the kingdom of God had arrived with Jesus, is how I read that. Matthew 13, 41 says, The Son of Man shall send forth His angels, and they shall gather out of His kingdom all things that offend, and them which do iniquity. So logically, how can the angels gather out of Christ's kingdom and separate the wheat from the tares if the kingdom doesn't already exist until after His coming? It must exist beforehand. Luke 17, 20 and 21, And when He was demanded of the Pharisees when the kingdom of God should come, He answered them and said, The kingdom of God cometh not with observation. Neither shall they say, Lo here or lo there. For behold, the kingdom of God is within you. You see, the kingdom has already arrived spiritually into the life of the believer. 
Romans 14, 17 says, For the kingdom of God is not meat and drink, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Ghost. And since we receive the Holy Ghost in our salvation, we receive His righteousness and we can experience His peace and His joy in the Holy Ghost, the kingdom has come within us. 1 Thessalonians 2.12, that you would walk worthy of God who hath called you into His kingdom and glory. Hath is present tense. For, or Colossians 1.13, who hath delivered us from the power of darkness and hath translated us into the kingdom of His dear Son. We have presently and spiritually already entered into God's kingdom. And again, I am not suggesting that there isn't a physical kingdom on the way. But we cannot neglect the fact that Jesus and Paul both preached about the kingdom being within us already. Now, why do I take the time to establish that point? Uh, Even though I'm still chewing on this, I tell you that because I am currently of the opinion that the primary interpretation of verse 20 should be that this is a reference to Christ who has been sent spiritually into the heart of the believer at the moment of salvation. The beginning of verse 22 certainly speaks of Christ's physical return. In verse 22 and 23, Peter uses an Old Testament passage about Moses who was foretelling about Christ's first arrival. And I think that that helps to frame the timing of the context here in this passage. And in verse 24, Peter mentions how the prophets have likewise all foretold of these days. These days being in reference to the days of the Messiah, which Moses and all the prophets said should come. And who Peter just preached, now God, Jesus is at the right hand of the Father, and He blesses believers with the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Uh, Was it Paul, I think, who said, uh, if you don't have the Spirit, you're no child of His. And by giving us the Holy Spirit, He literally gives us times of refreshing. His spiritual presence as we live in this earth below. I hope I'm not muddying the waters here and trying to explain this, but if I did, then understand that Christ has been sent to you if you are in Christ. Now, hold your place here. Go go to John chapter 14. I want you to lay eyes on this. I want you to see this. Just a few pages back, really. John chapter 14. Look at verses 16 through 18. And I will pray the Father, and He shall give you another Comforter, that He may abide with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it seeth Him not, neither knoweth Him, but ye know Him, for He dwelleth in you, and shall be in you. I will not leave you comfortless, I will come to you. So I hope you caught what Jesus is saying there. Jesus says, God will send the Comforter, the Spirit of Truth, the Holy Ghost, who will abide with believers forever. For He dwelleth with you and shall be in you. But I wanted you to see the end of verse 18, where Jesus says, I will come to you. Now that's amazing. Jesus here, first of all, He verifies the Holy Trinity. God the Son says, I'll pray to God the Father to send you God the Spirit. Don't doubt the Trinity. It may be hard to understand at times, but it is through the person of the Holy Ghost that our God uh, is living within us. 
And therefore, Jesus can say, I will come to you. I will come to you because I'm part of the Godhead. And I'm just simply going to manifest myself through the Holy Ghost. Now, go back to Acts chapter 3. I wanted you to see that because I think I am well within my biblical boundaries here to suggest to you that when we repent and are converted, that God does in fact send Jesus to us. And through the indwelling presence of God, we have the kingdom presently and spiritually, and we can experience the times of refreshing from the presence of the Lord, which will be manifested through righteous joy and peace through the Holy Ghost. But what about the beginning of verse 21? Whom the heaven must receive until the times of restitution of all things. This is a reference to Christ's coming. But it is not saying that verse 20 is a reference to Christ's return. But rather, Peter is letting them know not to expect another gospel. And I need you to understand this to really get this this text, or at least I believe what this text is trying to tell us. Peter is saying, don't expect another. Matthew Henry put it this way, um, they should instead expect the continuance and completion of this gospel. Don't look for another. Peter wants them to understand, don't expect the physical presence of Christ, but rather expect a spiritual indwelling of Christ because the heaven must receive Him until the time of the restitution of all things. And so really this statement by Peter about Christ being in heaven, to me it's just, a, just as much about Christ's ascension as it is His second coming. Mark 16, 19 says, So then after the Lord had spoken unto them, He was received up into heaven and sat on the right hand of God. I love the account in Acts. I didn't have it in my notes, but uh, ye men of Galilee, why stand ye up gazing? Why? Because the dew just like went up. (laughs) Sorry, that's not the right term. Christ just went up before us. Wouldn't you be standing there going, I mean, give us a second to just watch. And they're like, no, get to work. (laughs) Anyway, I just love that when I read that. I'm like, I would be standing there gazing too. Psalm 110 and verse 1, The Lord said unto my Lord, God said unto Christ, is what that is saying, if you'll you'll study that out. The Lord said unto my Lord, Sit thou at my right hand until I make thine enemies thy footstool. Hebrews 10, verses 12 and 13, But this man, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down on the right hand of God, from henceforth expecting till his enemies be made his footstool. So Christ is presently seated at the right hand of the Father, He's awaiting the time that God will send him again. At which time, as Revelation 11.5 says, the kingdoms of this world shall become the kingdoms of our Lord and of His Christ, and He shall reign forever and ever. This will be the ultimate restitution of all things. When as Revelation 10.7 says, the mystery of God should be finished. And just a quick side note here, with His physical body being in heaven, this poses a major problem for Catholics who are teaching transubstantiation through the Eucharist. Now, if you don't know what that's it, that's fine. But many of you came out of it. Many of you know exactly what I'm talking about. 
And so the Bible here is saying Christ is in heaven. That's where he's confined for now. He's waiting. I know he dwells within us, but that's through the person of the Holy Ghost. And so what the Catholics will tell you is when you take of the Lord's Supper, as we call it, that the bread literally becomes the body of Christ. Well, that's, a, that's an impossibility according to this passage. And that the blood literally becomes, or that the wine literally becomes the blood of Christ. That just seems a little screwy to me anyway. But this, this can't be true based upon Acts 3.21. Now, that side note aside, back to our text. Why was it so important? I'm sorry I'm rushing, but I'm trying to get to my point. Because I know I'm, I'm probably boring many of you. Why was it so important for Israel, who is Peter's primary audience here, why is it so important for them to hear that Christ is in heaven until the restitution? Why must they be told not to expect Christ's physical presence? And it's because Israel expected that the Messiah would begin reigning upon this earth forever when He arrived the first time. They expected deliverance from Gentile control. They were expecting that when the Messiah would arrive, He would sit upon the throne of David, restore the kingdom to Israel, and they would have the reign of the glory days of David and Solomon. They did not see a suffering Messiah. Some did. Most did not. And all of the leaders apparently, seemingly I should say, missed the point and got so wrapped up into who they thought Christ should be that they missed Him. John 12, 32-34, And if I, if I be lifted up from the earth, will draw all men unto Me. Listen to what Jesus, or what the Bible says next. This He said, signifying what death He should die. Okay, the people are, are putting this together. Here's this one who claims to be the Messiah. And now He's telling me, i got to be lifted up, signifying how He's going to die. They understood exactly what He meant. Because it says next, the people answered Him, we have heard out of the law that Christ abideth forever. And how sayest thou that the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? You see, they were confused that this one who claimed to be the Messiah would also say, I'm going to have to die. All they were focusing on was that Christ would abide forever. Which means that He would live forever. He would live and reign forever. Why is this man who's telling us he's the Christ going to die then? That flies in the face of Scripture. In their mind, Jesus had just contradicted what they understood the Bible to teach. And for this reason, Peter is establishing here how Christ had ascended and how He would remain in heaven until the restitution or we could say the accomplishment of all things. And this is important because we are a people who are supposed to live by faith, not by sight. But so many people want a sign. Well, if I could see God, I would believe. Well, that's a problem. And so really what Peter is getting at is for Israel here, don't expect another Messiah. I'm going somewhere with this. Hang in there. Don't expect another one. 
Remember that they had denied the Holy One and the just. They desired Barabbas, a murderer. They killed the Prince of Life, Peter said, because they did not believe Jesus was the Christ. For those who may not know, Jesus did not have a first name and a last name. And I'm not being funny. I just want you to understand for those who may not understand. Jesus was the name He was given, but He's the Christ in that He's the Messiah. It was not like Gary Brooks, Jesus Christ. Do you understand that? just want you to understand that. And so when he says he's the Christ, he's saying he's the Messiah. Same, it's the same thing. And to further prove Peter's point of not expecting another Messiah, what Peter does is, under the inspiration of the Holy Ghost, is he begins to quote from the, what we call the Old Testament. They just would have called it the Scriptures. He quotes from Deuteronomy 18, 18 through 19, here in verses 22 and 23. For Moses truly said unto the fathers, A prophet shall the Lord your God raise up unto you, and of your brethren like unto me. Him shall ye hear in all things whatsoever he shall say unto you. And it shall come to pass that every soul which will not hear that prophet shall be destroyed from among the people. Now, we'll likely look at this more in depth next week and and really get into how Jesus is like Moses in type or vice versa, however you want to look at that. But Peter desperately wants his his fellow kinsmen, he wants them to understand the Messiah had arrived just as Moses had foretold would happen and that the Messiah did exactly what God wanted him to do. And and this is is such an important statement by Peter because you got to understand the children of Israel, they claimed to be followers of Moses. Really what they did was they worshipped Moses. We'll see that a little bit later in another message, I think. They looked at Moses as, as, as it, man. and they. But the reality is they were not following Moses' teaching. Jesus said in John 5, 46, For had ye believed Moses, ye would have believed me, for he wrote of me. The religious Jews said in John 9, 29, We know that God spake unto Moses. As for this fellow, speaking of Jesus, we know not from whence he is. Do you see how they lifted Moses onto a pedestal? But the discerning, they were aware. In John 1.45, we read that Philip findeth Nathanael and saith unto him, We have found him of whom Moses in the law and the prophets did write, Jesus of Nazareth the son of Joseph. They said, we found him. Some were aware, some were puzzled. And certainly all were puzzled by the time Jesus gets arrested and he's going to die on the cross because even all his disciples forsook him and fled. And so what Peter here, he's establishing that this same Jesus that I just preached unto you, that you nailed to a cross, this same Jesus is in fact that prophet that Moses said, would arrive one day, don't expect another like unto him. Moses said, expect a prophet one day like unto me, but now that Jesus has come, we're not to expect another. Don't look for another prophet like unto Jesus. But Peter here says, if you'll repent and be converted, you can experience His refreshing presence. Because God will send Jesus unto you. So stop looking for another is what Peter is saying. And and this was always the issue for Israel. 
Remember when John the Baptist was in prison before he was beheaded? He even had a moment of doubt. The man who baptized the Lord and saw the Spirit descending like a dove and lighting upon Christ is locked up in prison and he has this moment of doubt because things are not panning out as expected. You getting that? And so he sends two of his disciples, look, go ask him, are you the one or do we look for another? Why? This, this is not how I expected it to turn out. I, I thought for sure that when the Messiah arrived, there would be a kingdom, we would be brought out under Roman control, and now the Romans are about to behead me. He may not have known that at the point, but they're going to carry his head in on a charger. Wait a minute. This is not how it's supposed to go. Let me close by asking you, who are you looking for in your Savior? Is your idea of who you thought Jesus should be and how your life is turning out, are those two things at odds? I mean, is your reality not matching up with who you thought Jesus would be? If not... The problem is not God. The problem is you. Did you have an idea that being in Christ would mean earthly deliverance for your benefit and glory? Did you expect smooth sailing and prosperity? Did you have the picture that everything was going to work out exactly as you planned? Well, like Peter is establishing in our text to Israel, let me assure you, do not expect another Jesus. The prosperity preachers of our day may be convincing many that you can have your best life now, but hear me well, they are preaching a corrupted, carnal view of the Messiah. They are trying to make Christ into what they want Him to be and not what the Bible actually says who He is. And don't think that this kind of thing doesn't happen in churches like ours. It does. It's happened here. And it is happening here. Sadly, I see it all too often. There are those who thought by coming to Christ their marriage problems would magically be done away with. And and you can spot it because they come in wanting the formula. Tell me what steps to take. There are those who thought being in Christ would mean their children would always sweetly obey and not be rebellious. That worked out for the first couple years. There are those who came to Christ thinking they would never have financial struggles. There are those who... I'm talking about independent Baptists. There are those who thought they would never be plagued by sickness. Pestilence, COVID. I never thought I would have disease. I never thought I should be plagued with cancer. There are those who have thought, and it has affected their life, that God should not have allowed someone to die. It was too soon, Lord. You shouldn't have allowed it. And I'm telling you this because I've dealt with all of these. And here's the thing. People get disappointed with God 
and then they turn their back on God, His church, and His people, all because they are dissatisfied that life is still hard. See also our Sunday morning series, what, a couple weeks ago. In reality, they were hoping for a different kind of Savior. Now, now I realize it's the Sunday night crowd and this kind of thing maybe ought to be preached Sunday morning. That's the bulk of it. I can remember a man who came in, I was so excited he got saved. It was very early after I became the pastor. Uh, it wasn't long until he left us. And he said, I tried God. I've never seen Him again. Of course I reached out. Of course I tried to get them to stay. Of course I was at the altar shedding tears for them. But you know what he was looking for? He was looking for a different Savior. I was looking for somebody that was going to please my flesh. They're looking for someone who will keep them from troubles, trials, tribulations, all of which Jesus said will come upon you. And the problem is people do not learn to rest in who Christ is. They're not enjoying the times of refreshing from the presence of the Lord. When God sends Christ to live in us through the Holy Ghost. And I mean to tell you, this is a major problem in Christianity today. There may even be someone in here tonight who has grown bitter at how life has turned out. And now you're mad at God. These are the ones who say things like, oh, I've read the Bible. Yeah, I tried God. I tried church. But you know, it didn't work out. What didn't work out? Your view of who you thought Christ should be? Is everybody with me? I may be wrong, but I think perhaps at, at some point in your life you're going to be faced with this to some degree. You see, people are not trusting that God will work all things for good to them who are the called according to His purpose. And they're not enjoying the peace and joy that is in Christ. They are not enjoying the times of refreshing from the presence of the Lord. I don't mean to just keep beating this, but... I, I hope you can get a hold of my heart and what I'm trying to tell you tonight. You see, people are mad at God because their marriage didn't pan out. You have a rebellious child and now you're mad at God. God, I went to church. I tried to raise them in church. I've tried to do all that I know to do. Maybe you're having health issues now and you're mad at God. You're in a desperate situation that seems hopeless and now you're mad at God. And the truth is, if you could, you would exchange Christ for a different Messiah. Because this isn't how it was supposed to turn out. If you had your way, you would pick someone who would usher in an earthly kingdom for you and make all of your earthly problems go away. But if you can't learn spiritual contentment, you're going to continue to struggle in this life. You say, what do you mean? You need to learn that Jesus doeth all things well. 
hey, listen, I've been walking with God long enough now to tell you He's going to come along and put His finger on something and say, I need that from you. And if you're not careful, you're going to fall in the trap and say, this isn't what I signed up for. And God comes to you and say, I I need you to leave your parents that you plan to retire with. I need you to give up that property you wanted to live on. Whatever it is, that's, that's what it was for me. God's going to say, I want that. And you're going to have to make a decision. Is this the God that I really want to follow or not? Is this really the Messiah that I thought I was going to get? I mean, am am I really supposed to have marriage problems? Am I really supposed to have financial struggles? Am I really supposed to go through life and just work by the sweat of my brow? And and, and am I really just supposed to have to deal with these children that constantly make me want to pull my hair out? I I tell you what God's been doing in my heart, and I guess this is why it's so heavy on on my heart tonight. Um, ever Ever since my parents moved to Georgia, and I knew that the property in Tennessee was sold, which I'm fine with. I want you to understand that. Once I knew that that had taken place, you know what God whispered to me? This world is not your home. What is it you're trying to hang on to here? I saw my dad, he's 78, he'll be 79 in January, and you know, he can't do the things that he used to do out on that property. I mean, they, they had to get rid of it. And you realize life is short. What is it that is so important that we feel like everything in this life has to go just so? It's selfishness. It is us telling God, you you should have done better with me. Listen, these are lessons that I've been learning. I'm just sharing my heart with you. God's saying, "What, what are you so hung up on? Well, if you go to the Smokies, you'll know. But anyway, uh, <laughs> this world is not our home. And, and I want you to understand tonight, there is nothing more important in this world than your walk with God. Amen. So who are you looking for? Stop looking for another. Holy trust God. Set your affections on things above, not on the things of this earth. Don't believe the prosperity preachers that are peddling to you the prosperity gospel that if you repent and be converted, everything's going to magically work out. And and let's just be honest tonight. This is something my dad and I were talking about. If having your sins blotted out isn't enough for you to constantly rejoice in Christ, something's wrong. I mean, just think about what God has done for you. Christians should be the most peaceful and the most joyful people on the planet. And what a shame for any child of God to bring an accusation before God that He hasn't turned out to be the God that you wanted Him to be. Micah 6, verses 2 and 3, Hear ye, O mountains, the Lord's controversy and ye strong foundations of the earth. For the Lord hath a controversy with His people, and He will plead with Israel. O my people, what have I done unto thee? And wherein have I wearied thee? Testify against me. You see, God rescued you from the pits of hell. He gave you a home in heaven. Can you really testify against Him?
but I know people who are. God isn't fair. God doesn't love me. God isn't coming through. God loved you and extended His mercy towards you, even died for you. You found grace in the eyes of the Lord, none of which we deserved, and somehow we can have the audacity to suggest that God has wearied us. Stop seeing God as one who exists for your glory and understand that you exist for His glory. Let go of this world. Just let go. I'm so glad that God didn't give up on me. It took a long time, and I'm sure there's more to come. Amen. But let go. Choose to live in the presence of God, and you can continually enjoy the refreshing that comes from the presence of the Lord. If you need to get right with God, I would ask you to come to the altar and do business with Him. The Lord did say, come and let us reason together. And I have had my times with the Lord where we reasoned together. And the Lord had to just smote my heart and remind me, it's not about you. Let's pray.